I am vengeance. I am the night. I am Batman. You need to take out the trash. I don't have time for that now. We have two podcasts I have to create a new promo for. What? Both JLU cast and Superman? Yes. JLU cast where you and I discussed the Justice League and Justice League Unlimited animated series from Bruce Tim and Company. And Supermates, our original show where we talk about all sorts of geeky stuff, including our annual House of Frankenstein series on classic horror films. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. But how do we combine this into one promo? I have no idea, but it sounds like we're doing our original Supermates promo all over again. I kind of think we are, but hey, other folks kind of aped it, so it must have worked. Well, why don't you get to work taking out the trash, and I'll finish up. Great. So join us, Cindy. And Chris. On JLU Cast and Supermates, both proudly part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, found at fireandwaterpodcast.com and on iTunes. Welcome back to an exciting new episode of the Vampire Movie Minute Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Chris. And I'm Scott Danielson. And we are going to be discussing the debut of Jim Carrey in Once Bitten, also starring Laura Hutton, Karen Coppins, and Cleveland Little. This is a 1980s comedy horror movie that uh, came out actually in 85. Ooh, why is that doing that? A vampire comedy horror movie that came out in 1985, and we'll have one other person on the podcast with us to discuss this weird little piece of vampire movie nuttiness with us. Scott, what was your first exposure to Once Bitten? Oh, I think it was a Comedy Central viewing at like 11 at night on <laughs> Saturday at one point. At the time that it, when you when you say that it was a comedy, how old were you when you saw it? Probably let's say late middle school, early high school. I don't have an exact year date on it, but adolescence, we'll say that. So, does it, do do you think this fueled your adolescence and uh, in your pursuit of understanding uh, women and uh, sexuality and things like that? Because that's the big topic of this movie is being a virgin. <laughs> yeah, no, it's 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 definitely a lot of hey, this it's it. It's a very odd time to put out a movie that says, hey, if, if you're a virgin, bad things could happen to you. <laughs> yes. Uh, virginity is bad. That's basically what it's saying. <laughs> yes. No, it's very bad. It's the opposite of the 40-year-old virgin. Right. Definitely. Did you know who Jim Carrey was at the time? Yes. I knew Jim Carrey vividly. I mean, if you grew up in the 90s, he was almost inescapable. Correct. When Jim Carrey recently just came back big time, just in time for all the movie theaters to close. <laughs> I know, yeah, he had uh, the big hit with Sonic the Hedgehog. Yeah, and, uh, and it was a big hit. It made a lot of money, too, before, it, unfortunately, the movie theaters closed. So that that's yeah. good that it actually got its box office run. It was probably in, going into, it was probably about to hit secondary theaters, but I heard it's come out in China now. So because uh, China was having the uh, coronavirus problems at the time the movie hit America, and they are showing a a lot of movies that they don't normally show, according to a lot of news reports. 
Yeah, it's for those of you who don't understand how the Chinese uh, mainland box office works, it's they actually usually only allow a certain number of non-Chinese uh, films into the nation. And so that means that that's why if you've ever wondered why they go to China in some Transformers movie, that's why they wanted to get it into that particular box office because it's very profitable. It's actually the biggest, it's one of the biggest in the world. But now they're kind of cutting that out because they haven't been able to produce movies for a while or a lot of these releases have been upended. So they're trying to fill the theaters and get people back out there. So, And one of the biggest movies of the year last year, uh, sorry, the biggest movie of the year last year actually just hit China uh, now. Avengers Endgame. I know. It, it, there's an ins- it's an insane how much money that movie has just started to make over there. It's crazy. I mean, you definitely know that Disney's not going to be hurting to continue uh, Star Wars and Marvel movies when we come back from this pandemic. No, no goodness, no. Because uh, they're going to get all that money from China. <laughs> yeah, and it, it, it's interesting. If you ever want to look up just kind of fascinating numbers in terms of box office, look up how popular like Marvel movies are, like Avengers Endgame in South Korea. Like, insanely popular, like almost $200 million on that small nation. So we're going to jump right into our notes for the movie, The uh, Once Bitten, as soon as I can find out where I just put my notebook. Okay, here we go. All right, so, uh, and we're going to have another guest joining us, uh, sorry, another co-host joining us uh, very briefly, but we're going to get started right now. The first thing that pops up is the MGM Lion, who I don't believe popped up at the beginning of the Lost Boys because that was a Warner Brothers movie. But what, what what's some uh, history about the MGM Lion? Oh, goodness. I forget exactly the exact history of the MGM Lion. I do know that they've been through a number of lines. The sound is always the same, but you can tell year to year that uh, they used to change the logo all the time, and now they kind of just keep it this. Now they just keep it the same, especially since MGM as it is not technically its own studio anymore. So they were bought, they were bought up, I believe, by Sony, and now I don't think they technically exist anymore. That's why, like, I remember that was why I think Spectre, um, one of the James Bond films, got delayed, like, for a year while they were trying to figure out what was going on with MGM, so. Correct. The most commonly used lion is Leo the Leo the Lion, the MGM lion. There you go. He was from 1957 to the present, uh, used in all of their marketing campaign logos and the roar at the beginning of MGM Studios. Wow, there you go. And then uh, the next credit that pops up is the signature of Samuel Goldwyn Company, who if you watched any movies in the 80s, that was a very commonly seen uh, signature that would scribe up uh, right at the beginning of the film. Yeah, I mean, it's part of, it's kind of an offshoot from uh, Metro Golden, Goldwyn Mayer, which is MGM. And uh, yeah, it's, it's continued to this day, it used, it's technically an independent company, <laughs> which is... They were... Yeah, they're the Funkas of 1999. Uh, it was an independent film company. It's kind of an offshoot of Metro Golden, uh, Metro Goldwyn Mayer. And uh, they actually were probably most famous for a bunch, a series of, at least for, for my generation, a series of animated films, so including the Care Bears movie, Rockadoodle, and Swan Lake. <laughs> and the Chipmunk Adventure. That's correct. There you go. So yeah, a lot of not very like if you, you look at their movies and you're and you, if you really wondered, oh, why didn't they continue to go on? They didn't really make. They made a handful of decent movies, but for the most part, they were not very profitable. Like the most well known, Once Bitten is one of the best known ones, and outside of that, you have stuff like uh, Sid and Nancy, Hollywood Shuffle, um, Hello Mary Lou, Prom Night Two. That's one, <laughs> and Mystic Pizza. Because reasons. <laughs> so. 
Right. Then it right cuts to the opening, sh- the outside shot of the Countess's mansion, which is located at uh, uh, one thirty thirteen fifty five Anglo Drive, Beverly Hills, uh, California. And it is now actually the home of RJN Productions, the studio of uh, independent, uh, a lot of independent horror movies. Very nice. I actually called them to find out about uh, some information about the mansion, but then no one was available. But uh, yeah, this is RJN, uh, which is seen on the side of a lot of different uh, uh, DVDs that I've gotten in the mail for review for my movie, for my radio show, Radio of Horror. Um, unless it's actually the RJN race car drivers or the RJN investigators or the RJN music label. But I'm pretty sure it's RJN Productions, which is, uh, they have their own Facebook page and you can go to RJN Production, but it hasn't been updated since, uh, 2019. So it may or may not be them, but it's a lavish mansion that is still being used today. I don't know if anyone lives there, but the person who answered the phone said they'd get back to me. Okay, so right at the beginning of the credits, we have the four main uh, characters in the movie get their credits. Laura Hutton, Jim Carrey, Taron, and Cleveland. Now, we all know who Jim Carrey is. Jim Carrey, as we said, of course, uh, was just in the uh, Sonic the Hedgehog movies, The Mask, Ace Ventura, Pet Detective. He had kind of a slump recently uh, due to some uh, personal life problems we're not going to get into, but... Um, I, I I still consider him to be one of my favorite actors of all time. Uh, Laura Hutton is a uh, former Playboy uh, playmate. Yeah, Laura Hutton is, is arguably one of the most famous models of all time. Uh, so she was big with Revlon, and then she started off a movie career in the movie American Gigolo, where uh, there, you might see more of Richard Gere than you do of her. But um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, and so this was. This was, she started into a string of B movies and then she came back in the 90s, but her career in terms of both modeling and, and modeling in particular was prolific. Yeah, I mean, she is a, uh, she is a bunny. Uh, she's worked at the mansion and she has been a uh, Playboy Playmate of the Month. And there are several pictures of her uh, throughout her career online that you can see her in the nude, her in the bunny costume, and uh, her today. She's 72 years old and recently just interviewed about what she's doing in her life just and she says that she goes to um, she goes to bed with a good book every night. Not a big interview, but uh, just kind of interesting to see that she's still you know doing interviews. And maybe we could probably have her on the show one day. It would yeah, be maybe. amazing. I mean, she's she is basically like the A list character. She's the A list actress in this movie, next to Jim Carrey. And the- Jim Carrey was nobody at the time. Yeah, he was he was a nobody at all. They just kind of plugged and played you know whatever young actors they could and as to play teenagers. Back in the day. Right, right. Um, I always thought she was absolutely beautiful in this movie. I didn't know much about her, and I didn't know she had appeared in Playboy until many years later, but I absolutely fell in love with her. She is uh, quite the heartthrob. Agreed. Jim Carrey, of course, uh, we already talked about, but Cleveland Little, best known for playing what role in what famous comedy? Yeah, he's most famous for playing Sheriff Bart in Blazing Saddles. So Cleveland Little, unfortunately taken from us very young, died of a very young age of, I believe it's, yeah, 50, 53 due to complications with uh, stomach cancer. Apparently he had just ulcers and stomach problems through his entire life, and he died from colon cancer at a very young, very young age, comparatively. That's sad to hear, um, but uh, his last role was going to Chicago, um, and his character in this movie is Sebastian, He, mm-hmm. uh, which is also the name of my cat. Oh, there you go pretty much is retired from acting. She has four kids. 
She did a few other things after this, but not very much. But she plays Robin Pierce, the girlfriend of Jim Carrey's character. And she was actually born in New England, in Connecticut. But her last big role was in 1994. But she's still alive today. And she was on Dallas for 13 years. And uh, The Love Boat, T.J. Hooker, Knight Rider. So she did all the 80s kind of television series. And my fa- my personal favorite credit of hers for you Riverdale fans, she played Veronica Lodge in Archie to Riverdale and back again in a TV movie. Oh, my God. Oh, nice. That's funny, yeah. considering that we're in the uh, cusp of the uh, season four of Riverdale right now on the CW. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> she married her high school sweetheart in 1990, Mark Shaw. Oh, that's too nice to hear. Which is funny, considering that her boyfriend, played by Jim Carrey in the movie's name, was Mark Kendall. But Mark is a pretty popular name. Right. It, it, I just thought that was funny, that uh, the, the, <laughs> the object of her affection in this movie has the same name as her husband. It was meant to be. It was meant to be. So, okay, so then next in the credits we have uh, Vivian Marquet, uh, who unfortunately was is, is passed away, and she was the casting director for this movie. Then Sebastian moves over to fix the Countess a Bloody Mary, does that look like, after uh, straightening her picture with just a nudge? It looks like a Bloody Mary, and it's supposed to uh, be to the audience as if it's a Bloody Mary, because you hear the shaking of ice and pouring into a glass, but it's actually blood. Ah, Yeah, and you've got the celery stock even, too. Yeah, exactly. Who painted the picture in one spank and one spitten? I do not know. Who did? I have I have a bit of trivia. I know it's based. It's a variation on a famous painting. I believe it's in. Hang on, it's in front of me. Where is it? Okay, so this is this is directly from uh, directly from the IMDb trivia page. It says the painting of the Countess was modeled after Madonna. Uh, it's a 19th century painting by Monk by Edvard Monk. So the original plan was that, uh, yeah, that this was, that they apparently, the original idea was that almost all the production design was going to be based off of Monk's art, <laughs> but the director decided to make it very, very 80s instead. <laughs> but the painting was already done, apparently. The song at the beginning of the movie is by John Duprez. Yes. He does and the this, composing for, I think, the entire movie. My favorite is that was a member of the 1980s Malta salsa-driven pop band Modern Romance. <laughs> And then also, oh, this is also fun. He did, he did the soundtrack to all three of the original Ninja Turtles movies. Yes, live action ones. That is why his name I'm... sounded so familiar to me. <laughs> I love those movies. Yeah, they're and also then, uh, uh, covered on the uh, Movie Minute podcast section of this of the Movie Minute website. Um, I've only listened to the first movie. I haven't gotten into Secret of the Ooze, but uh, I do have the uh, original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles score on vinyl. It had never been released before until two years ago. Oh my goodness! Go you! Yeah, definitely. <laughs> DP is Adam Greenberg, who worked in Adam Greenberg was a cinematographer, also best known for Terminator Two: Judgment Day, as well as the original Terminator, Ghost and Sphere, and is uh, was working as of 2013. Uh, he was born in 1939, so he's definitely up there in age. So he might have retired. IMDb does not list him as having passed away. There you go. So, see, producer on the film is Russell Thatcher, and screenplay and story credits are up to five people on this movie. Uh, and then, of course, it ends with uh, the director, Howard Storm, who's also worked on Valentine's Day, Take the Money and Run, and The Manchurian Eagle. I don't know if that's any connection to The Manchurian Candidate. Jeffrey House only produced uh, to one other movie, The Bachelor Man, and David Hines also wrote the movie Whore. Oof. 
Um, so you go from once bitten to whores. I, I just, I kind of see the connection a little bit. Oh, jeez. I think it's interesting. Howard Storm, the director of this movie, is didn't direct almost any other movies, but he is a prolific TV director. It, it's pretty much name name a show, and he's had a hand in it. He directed almost sixty episodes of Mork and Mindy. Uh, he directed almost ten episodes of Laverne and Shirley. Uh, my favorite, and uh, it doesn't look. Yeah, he's he's it looks like he stopped in right before two thousand, but his last credit on IMDb as a director is four episodes of Keenan and Kel, which is perfect. <laughs> One of the other writers in this, I want to point out, Dimitri Villard. Villard Dimitri Villard also wrote Flight of the Nav. He was a producer on Flight of the Navigator, which is one of my favorite Disney movies of all time. Love it. It's about a kid. Uh, Scott, have you ever seen this? Yes. Okay. For anyone not familiar with it, which I don't know if there's a Flight of the Navigator minute, but uh, it's about a kid who disappears for ten years. And when he returns, everyone um, has aged except for him. And he finds out that he was abducted by an alien. And because of the fragile human nature of bodies, uh, humans cannot time travel. So that's why that's why he was dropped off ten years later. Correct. So uh, that got so uh, a lot of the cast has worked in uh, many different uh, things. So Sebastian walks up to the uh, wipes his feet uh, before entering the countess's chambers as he's carrying a black rose and her bloody Mary, uh, probably made from Mary, probably some peasant uh, from the uh, Austria early 1700s. What was happening in Austria in the early 1700s? I believe that's that's around Vlad's era, if I'm not mistaken. No, I don't. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't know Austrian history, unfortunately. I'm still my head. Early 1700s in Austria was controlled by Leopold I. Yeah, I would have never pulled that fact out of my brain. <laughs> and it was the final unification and liberation of the Ottoman Empire. Leopold I's reign was marked by a return to a succession of wars, even before he succeeded his father in 1657. Uh, the terms dictated they need to deal with the French in the West were so uh, disadvantaged they were infuriated by the Hungarians who were revolting against them. The Ottomans next moved over to Austria in 1682, and um, Leopold was expelled, by the way, from the Jewish uh, religion in uh, Vienna in uh, the uh, later part of his life. The uh, taking over for Leopold I was Joseph I and uh, Charles III during the uh, War of Spain. Yeah, if you look at just... You look at that century, it's just a hot mess for that, that region. <laughs> she said that the blood wasn't vintage. It wasn't good enough, and it wasn't virgin. Perhaps in the vampire minds, the 1700s isn't as, as long ago as like we would consider the 1700s. I mean, this is 1985. It's pretty long ago. That's 200 years. Yeah, but like we call vintage something that's you know practically 100 years old. And in vampire terms, since they live so much longer, she didn't even consider the 1700s. 1800s vintage. I think Mr. Zeneca would definitely be the vampire in this scenario, as uh, <laughs> she is complaining as much as the Countess is, that being a vampire in the 20th century is a nightmare. And that's how we end this five minutes of Once Bitten. Join us next week for the next five minutes of the Vampire Movie Minute podcast as we cover minutes uh, five to ten. And you can find all the episodes on RadioHorror.com and all the other great films in the Movie Minute catalog on movieminutes.com and you can find all of our all of us on our individual Twitters at ChrisDSAV. Scott, where can they find this podcast? It's going to be the Vampire Movie Minute on Twitter and Facebook. And where can they find you, Mr. Zeneca? Uh, they can find me at at Elegantly Kinky on Twitter. Again, tune back next week, everyone, for the next five minutes of One Spittin'.